Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. I'm Sam, and today we are thrilled to have Professor Susan Hockfield joining us. A neuroscientist by training, Susan Hockfield is the author of The Age of Living Machines, which speaks to the technological-biological revolution known as convergence. She served as the 16th president of MIT and was the first woman and the first life scientist to lead the institute. Professor Hockfield has also held the Marie Curie Visiting Professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. She has served as a U.S. science envoy to Turkey with the U.S. Department of State and served as the inaugural co-chair of the White House-led Advanced Manufacturing Partnership, a task force, a task force of government, industry, and academic leaders. Currently, she is a member of MIT's Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research and professor of neuroscience at MIT. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. So we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Could you share a moment with us? Yeah, I think most people, when they reflect on how their careers or their lives took form, will have had many moments or opportunities when they didn't pursue the direction that they thought they were going to go on and ended up turning right or left when they would have expected to have just gone straight. And that's happened to me any number of times. But probably the most important first one happened when I was in college. Um, I always liked math and science more than other things and had a little bit greater facility with that than um, other enterprises. And my parents were children of immigrants. And so it was pretty clear that I should go to medical school. And so I was on that track to go to medical school. But I felt a little uncomfortable about it because I was uncomfortable in hospitals and around sick people, but I really was passionately curious about how living things worked. I used to dissect things in the garden. I just had this idea that if I could pull something apart and figure out how the parts work together, I would understand how it functioned. So in addition to dissecting daffodils or acorns, I also dissected my mother's iron and her vacuum cleaner, a little bit more serious consequences by taking those things apart. <laughs> Um, but it wasn't until I was in college, and I remember so clearly being in a class my junior year that just caught my imagination in ways that no other class had. And after class one day, the professor had presented something that I found very interesting, and I went to see him after class. I'd never done that before, foolishly. Wow. Hadn't realized you're supposed to go talk to your professors if something interests you. And as we talked about this fascinating cell biological phenomenon that he had described, somehow I managed to bare my soul and tell him my ambivalence about the path that I was on. And I remember him just fixing me with a stare and saying, you should get a job in a lab. So I followed his advice. I got a job in a lab. And the first day I went to work, I realized that I had discovered the thing I'd always been looking for. So I changed direction. I didn't go to medical school. I worked in a lab for a couple of years and then went to graduate school and got a PhD and uh, just had the greatest joy in finding something that I loved and um, could do something that would really advance understanding in the world. Um, so I was wondering if you could share some tips or advice to students who um, may have been may be coming to the realization that their current trajectory is not what they want their permanent trajectory to be and, and what they want to continue pursuing. Um, when you did make that change um, and decided to work in the lab, what were some of the some of the fears um, you faced and what were some of the things you did to kind of combat those fears? Yeah, fundamental research is not an easy track and it's not an obvious path and I, my parents were really quite puzzled by it and uh, actually weren't entirely comfortable with it because it's 
an unusual kind of trajectory. They were much more comfortable with the idea of having a doctor in the family than with having a, a neuroanatomist in the family. Um, and so uh, it required a, well, actually it required a certain amount of fortitude, but frankly, it sounds simplistic, but one of the things I always advise my students is to find something you're so passionate about, you just can't not do it. And that gives you an enormous amount of, of security and sense of that it'll work out, that you'll figure out how it can work out by following your passion. It doesn't always happen, but I think for people who haven't quite figured out where they fit, there are a couple things I'd say. First of all, it's hard to figure out where you fit by studying in class. So certainly my experiment, my experience in joining a lab as a lab technician was completely different from anything I had done in school. So I just encourage people to be patient with themselves, but certainly figure out where, you know, and what kinds of things that you're thinking about. Your, your heart beats a little faster, or when you go home at night, there are just ideas that keep, you know, coming up to the top of your mind. And look for things that you really love, because no matter what you do, the going is going to get tough. And at least for me and many people, it's a lot easier to keep going if you're doing something that at heart is something you just really, really love. So Professor, still on the topic of your passion for science, I've been told, I'm not a STEM kid myself, but I have a lot of friends who are. And one of the, one of the common sentiments towards the field of science especially is this sense that even though it's the one field that's supposed to help humans make, us, make sense of the world around them, there's also this sense that no matter how much we know, um, there's still a vast unknown out there. And, and because of this, science is this a, a very dynamic field that's always evolving. And, how, and I was wondering if you could speak a little to what keeps you motivated, um, especially it seems like you've been sticking with science since such a young age and until now, it, there's still this undying love for the field, and I want, and I was wondering if you could share a little more about your relationship with this passion of yours. Yeah, that's a really great observation and a great question. I think that um, when we're studying as students, we study things that are facts mm -hmm. or presumed to be facts, but the truth is that science is never completely known, and we do our best to contest one view with another and come up with the best possible answer now. And we present that as a fact. <laughs> well, it's a fact today, but if you can think of all the facts that we've accumulated over the last several hundred years of doing science, you know, they're often only approximately correct. And that idea that there are very few inviolable truths, even in science, science is better because if you and I disagree about something, we can come up with a, an experiment to test whether your view or my view is more correct. But um, for me, one of the exciting things about studying at the college level is that you've, you move away from known facts. You have to have a foundation of known principles or known facts in any discipline. But then to move up to this next level of testing the boundaries and figuring out where there are weaknesses and where there's an opportunity to really dig in and resolve some problem for me, that's the real excitement of learning. And for very good reason, most people don't get to that until they're in college, and even some people in college don't get to that. So I think you have to be comfortable uh, with knowing that 
you're likely to be wrong at some point and uh, to be reasonably comfortable with uh, a perpetual state of uncertainty. And to my mind, that is what being a real adult is about, is not, being, not feeling it necessary to cling to semi-truths as though they were full truths. It's an awkward place to be, but I think it's our responsibility as adults, as uh, members of a community, as I hope you will be leaders, uh, to have a kind of humility about what we believe we know and always be open, always be curious about how those boundaries shift and change. Um, and it seems that alongside your, your love of, of science and your dedication to it, you're, you're also very committed to, to higher education. Um, as your background um, clearly clearly suggests. Um, I was wondering how you kind of made your way back to higher education and found yourself as a, a professor or an, and then even president of MIT. Yeah, that's also a very good question because um, I was so in love with science, I could not imagine doing anything but that and never had any idea that I would ever leave the lab to do something else. I mean, why would I do something else when I could wait, walk in in the morning and realize that, you know, I was in heaven and, you know, there was nothing else I would prefer to do than to go to the lab and work with my students and postdocs and figure things out. Um, and also teach. Teaching was also very important to me. Um, when uh, President Rick Levin of Yale University asked me to consider becoming Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, uh, at first, I did not um, think very seriously about it because, again, I was trying to avoid doing that kind of thing because I was very interested in uh, my science and doing science and running my lab. But I went home and thought about it, and I realized that the reason I was able to have such an extraordinary career and find such joy and delight in my science and in teaching was because other people had stepped up to the responsibility of running a university. And when universities and colleges are well run, our students and faculty have the luxury of not worrying about it. And I realized that my graduate education had changed my life entirely and it was about time for me to step up to that responsibility of doing what I could to be sure that the graduate students and the faculty in the graduate school could have the best possible experience of their lives. So it was um, really, the first was a calling to be a scientist, and then the next phase of my career became a call to service, and I found enormous satisfaction and joy in that, very different from running a lab. And uh, when I had to tell a couple of my mentors um, that I had agreed to take on this task of being dean, uh, one of them, who I was very nervous about telling, was just an ardent scientist. Uh, as soon as I told him, he just gasped, and he said, that's fantastic. Most people don't know that it matters who runs a university. And I came to study the history of the university, um, you know, the history of higher education, and it's an amazing history. And if you think about what a gift it is to the students and the faculty who have come to our campuses, it's quite remarkable that this institution has taken the form that it has and has persisted as long as it has. So, Professor, you, um, as Sam has also asked, um, um, with his previous question, you've had a variety of experiences in both as a professor in, position, in leadership positions in higher education, as an expert researching in a lab, 
etc as well as in some gov some form of government public service role um, there's clearly a very direct relationship between the role of higher education with academic research but I was wondering if you could speak more uh, to the relationship that you think academic research has with policy making or the or what kind of or sorry let me rephrase that I was wondering if you could speak a little more about the relationship between academic research and translating these new findings with policy making and the importance of this relationship yeah so again another really important area I never expected to uh, lend my way to any kind of policy issues but when you're president of MIT, you're called on to opine and if you have an opportunity to kind of put your shoulder to the wheel around policy. And policy is local in the city of Cambridge, in Boston, in the state of Massachusetts, and nationally, and actually internationally also. Uh, and again, another surprising turn in my life because um, I didn't study. Unfortunately, like you, I should have studied more politics and government uh, when I was in school. But uh, I think one uh, one example of this is something, Sam, that you called out in reading my bio. To co-chair the Advanced Manufacturing Partnership for President Obama was really um, a role that uh, nothing like it I've ever done before. But the problem for any community, any nation, is how do you pave the path to the future? And the United States, we hear a lot about manufacturing of the past. How do we get to next generation manufacturing? How do we use things like 3D printing? How do we move that from making plastic trinkets to making fuel nozzles for a jet engine? How does that happen? And how do we prepare the nation to be part of next generation's manufacturing? And so it was an interesting problem, and it's not a problem that you can solve at the university alone. And so the Advanced Manufacturing Partnership was a collaboration between industry, the academy, and government that set a path forward, not just theoretically, but also practically. Uh, we recommended setting up some advanced manufacturing hubs in various parts of the country to develop these next generation technologies, next generation batteries. You know, frankly, we're not gonna get to the alternative energies that we want to displace fossil fuels unless we develop better energy storage. This is going on all around the world and it was the perspective of the Advanced Manufacturing Partnership and the Obama administration that um, if we want to be participants and leaders in that next generation world, we better be developing the manufacturing, the technologies, and then the manufacturing of those technologies. So that was a completely new experience for me. And it requires all kinds of skills beyond being a scientist, beyond being an academic leader, a real sense of how policy gets made. It was. Um, uh, part of my role as MIT's president to go to Washington and advocate for sound policies for not just education and research, but also for you know the future of uh, the nation as a um, an industrial force. Um, so I'm going to pivot a little bit more towards your towards your current work, um, your book, The Age of Living Machines. Um, can you give just a brief introduction to to some of our reader or listeners who might not really understand the concept of a living machine? Can you give a brief introduction? Yeah, so the uh, title doesn't capture it exactly, but mm -hmm. here's the idea, that if we think about the technologies that have transformed our lives, I don't think anyone could doubt that the technology story of the 20th century was 
the story of the development of the digital world. You know, I'm, you know, looking at all the electronics around us, none of this existed 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And so where did they come from? And as I think about it, the electronics industry and its successors, the computer and information industries, became possible because physicists, toward the end of the 19th century, decoded the parts list of the physical world. J.J. Thompson described the electron in 1897 and all the components of, of atoms. And engineers picked up that parts list and invented the technologies of electronics. Electronics wasn't an industry in 1900, it didn't have a name. And so you see what the picture of the 20th century technology story is the convergence of the physics parts list with engineering. Well, frankly, we didn't have a parts list in biology until you know, kind of the mid-1950s. It began to take form, but now we do. When I arrived at MIT, uh, I was in a fantastic conversation. I remember it very clearly with the then Dean of Engineering, Tom Magnanti, who told me that among the almost 400 faculty in the School of Engineering, one third of them were using biological parts in their work. And I said, you mean biomedical engineering? And he said, oh, it's well beyond that. Engineers are using biological parts to make any number of things. And that's what Convergence 2.0, or the Age of Living Machines, is about. Now, we're facing a lot of you know, really challenging problems. We're going to have almost 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. Oh my gosh, we can't feed our current population. We can't provide clean water for our current population. We can't provide energy sustainable for our population. How are we going to face this Malthusian dilemma? I don't know if you have heard about Thomas Malthus who was the crier of doomsday mm -hmm. in 1798. We're at another Malthusian moment. And uh, you know that was ended up not to be a terrible moment because there were technologies that saved the day then. I believe that we have access to new kinds of technologies that will save the day once again. And I think that Convergence 2.0, the convergence of biology with engineering, are gonna provide a whole set of new technologies that we can only dream about today. So the book gives some examples. The book uh, was written for a general audience, not for scientists or engineers who know this stuff backwards and forwards and can give you 25 examples for each of the one I offer, but uh, just a way to uh, kind of share my optimism about the technologies of the future, but also to help people who are curious have a sense of why the biology parts list, what it is and how it can be deployed. Um, just a quick follow-up to that. Um, so I think your book does a, a great job of bringing attention to, to these great, um, the potential that, that uh, living machines in this convergence um, offers. But do you believe there's enough attention given to the potential and kind of the developments and the dynamic nature of the world of, uh, or the intersection of technology and, and, and biology within our, like today's news cycles, today's political discourse, um, or even at, at just higher higher education institutions and, and, and colleges and universities? You know, it's always hard to, um, in my mind, give enough attention to the technological miracles that are emerging around us. And truth be told, it's hard work to understand this. Uh, one of my guide stars in the book was a dear friend of mine who's a brilliant businesswoman, brilliant. And she's a little younger than I am. When I told her about the book, she said, wow, that sounds so interesting. Well, I learn what a gene is. Now, as a biologist, 
my first response was for my jaw to drop and say, you don't know what a gene is. But I, I, instead of doing that, I thought, wow, these are the people I want to reach, the people who are intelligent and curious and haven't yet had an opportunity to understand what a gene is because by the time, I mean, if you ask me today what a gene is, I go through some long scientific explanation. And by the time I got to what a gene was, you would have lost interest. <laughs> so, um, so the book is designed to, uh, to help people understand. But frankly, uh, these are hard things for most people to understand. And uh, I don't think our news cycle is well-tuned to providing the kind of background and you need a lot of patience to kind of, you know, get to the, um, you know, to the end of the story. <laughs> so um, the thing I do worry about is uh, as a nation, not having enough of a focus on, you know, building the technologies of the future. But I assure you, um, as MIT president, I had visits from people all around the world who realized that to repeat the American miracle of the second half of the 20th century, where you had economic, industrial growth, you know, that beat every other nation, what they needed to do was have a place like MIT and a com federal commitment, a national commitment to getting to actually inventing that future. So um, there are a lot of places around the world where a lot of commitment, big dollar commitment, and frankly, big national commitment. And I think the United States is not where we should be. And I do really worry about uh, the fact that our news cycles are caught up with things that are not really so much related to building the future that uh, we'd like to live in. Mm -hmm. Professor, before we, la we move on to our last question, I'd like to ask you, you know, with as with most new technological innovation, everything's a double-edged sword. And while it's amazing that we're at an age that we can harness these new biology parts list, as the way you put it, I've also been hearing from some of my STEM friends who are in tune with politics and international relations, the threat or the potential threat of bio, bio warfare, um, biotech warfare. Um, do you think that this is a that this is a potential risk in the foreseeable future? And if so, how should we um, how should we guard against it, or at least think about some some forms of preventive measures? Yeah, very important. So, um, uh, yeah, it's a question I often get, and I have to answer it with a tremendous amount of sobriety. But we must remember that technologies by themselves are agnostic. It's not the development of technology that's used for ill. It's someone who decides to use a technology for ill. I've been reading a fabulous book called uh, The Alchemy of Air, and it's about uh, the discovery of how to get nitrogen out of the air to use for initially fertilizer. But it's a technology that they actually figured it out in Germany just before World War I. And guess what? Nitrogen's good for fertilizer. It's also necessary for explosives. It's not the technology that was wrong. It was the application of the technology. And so we have to get, essentially guard ourselves, our, our, we have to guard against ourselves. So there certainly is possibility for all of these new biological technologies like gene engineering uh, to be used for um, bad purposes. And I do worry about it. Uh, I worry about not knowing enough about the technologies we're using then they end up at the end of the day or you know the end of the decade to have uh, 
let's say, health consequences that we hadn't anticipated, and you just have to watch it because there's no way to know in advance, and we're certainly not going to stop the progress of technology. The thing I fear most is the um, use of some of the new, uh, the new and the old um, gene manipulation technology to uh, weaponize pathogens. I think that's a very clear danger, uh, and it's something we just have to be prepared for. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Professor Hockfield, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you.